Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hey everyone, I was browsing the headline news the other day that's provided on the Church and Culture website, which if you have not already checked that out, it is so helpful. We'll link that in the show notes, but I couldn't resist clicking on this article. Uh, it, it was accompanied by this description. It says, babies without sex, researchers are working on it, ethicists are trouble. I mean, that I just had to click on that. But to give a really brief synopsis, so essentially the, the linked article describes what's known as IVG or in vitro gametogenesis. And it's approach that goes way beyond IVF, which is in vitro fertilization. So essentially IVG is this experimental technique by which scientists are trying to reprogram just about any adult cell to become sperm and egg cells, which they can yet then use in a lab to grow um, embryos. So hence no sex required, right? Well, the no sex part is also present in IVF too, but IVF does use actual sperm and egg cells from an actual male and an actual female. But with IVG, you could simply provide a skin biopsy. And then a lab would transform your skin cells into eggs or sperm. And then after that, the rest of the process would resemble IVF with viable embryos implanted into a woman's uterus. And so at first glance, IVG may not seem like, as I described, a huge leap forward from IVF, but when you start to consider its implications, which ethicists are doing now, you do quickly see that this is indeed a huge leap. So Jim, why don't you talk about some of those implications? Yeah, and I am glad we're talking about this because this is very cutting edge technology and, and is cutting edge um, in terms of what ethicists are having to deal with. And so they're, they're literally, they're thinking about this this very second for almost the first time. The possibilities inherent within IVG as opposed to IVF are, are, are really significant. Uh, we tend to think of the search for the perfect race, the perfect baby, the perfect generation as something from science fiction or, you know, going back to even Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And, and IVG makes it all real. Uh, this really is uh, about much more than just helping people with fertility issues. I mean, we're already doing that uh, quite, quite well, I think. This is about doing things like allowing um, same-sex couples, for example, to have a child who is biologically truly related to both parents. In other words, develop an egg from one person's skin and sperm from another person's skin and completely bypassing the natural order. Uh, that's, and that raises a set of ethical questions. You're completely bypassing the natural order of how we are made and for all things procreation. Um, a second set of ethical questions and concerns would be the number of embryos destroyed in the process. If you believe that life begins at conception, that would obviously be an issue. But I mean, we're not talking about just the first three months here. Uh, we'll, and we could talk about this more, but um, most genetic testing that would be used would not happen until the second trimester. And so uh, anyway, that raises ethical questions. A third set of concerns is just the crass industrialization of procreation. I mean, turning it into a consumer driven industrial project. Uh, you know, as, as, as people have said, yes, in the future, people will have sex for pleasure, but not for children. 
They want a child, they'll go to a store, if you will, to order up a child on the basis of this technology. Uh, final set of concerns, though many more could be uh, cited, has to do with the genetic side of this. Uh, now, IVG doesn't necessarily actually mess with genetics, uh, but here's what it does allow. Once you turn a skin cell into a sperm cell, and you can do that in an unlimited way, then people can sift through, as I mentioned, any number of embryos to pick the one they want. They functionally engineer that child. I read one person describing it as a way around experimenting on children. The cultivation of a particular kind of child through parental desires in a market-driven context essentially entails experimentation on children. You're just going through embryo after embryo after embryo as if those were the experimentations until you find the child that you want. Again, these are just only a few of the concerns in the new world that um, is opened up. Well, IVG just in and of itself is fascinating, but with your permission, I think I'd like to expand the scope of our conversation a little bit because I want to talk more generally about bioethics. Um, it's certainly great that ethicists are having conversations now about IVG, um, but it, it's also fascinating to consider the fact that bioethics is a relatively new area of study. Like you'll you'll see hints of it as early as 1960s, and that that's not early when you consider the history of scientific study. But it didn't even become like a degree that you could study in college until the 1990s, and so it seems like we should have been considering ethics as related to science since the very beginning. But apparently, that's not the case. So, can you talk about like why that is and what has prompted the shift towards bioethics? And we still don't have college classes or we're just only now starting to have them on ethics with technology. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother subject, which we could get into, which is the, the ethics of something like AI. But the reason we're talking about it now is because we have to. Advances in science and technology have forced conversations that would never have entered our minds in earlier eras, particularly uh, bioethics, meaning ethics surrounding issues of biology and specifically uh, human life. And even more specifically, the nature of life. What makes it special? When does it begin? When does it end? How much can we play with it and alter it? Or should we play with it and alter it through genetics? Words and phrases that weren't even part of human vocabulary are now at the heart of public discourse. I mean, words like stem cell research or human cloning or gene pool therapy and artificial intelligence and IVG. Um, so uh, what complicates it is that it's, it's, it's not simply that it's new territory, but that, but that there's great pressure on scientists that maybe the average person isn't aware of because they're not living in that scientific world. And so it's fair that you wouldn't be aware of it, but there's great pressure on scientists and quite frankly, on profit-centered companies to bypass ethics. I mean, the, the pressure is to ignore ethics. The thinking is that if we slow down long enough to think about these things ethically and make appropriate decisions, um, then that's just going to open the door for another country, another company less bound by ethical concerns, and they'll make that discovery first or they'll develop it and apply it first. So bioethics um, looms large as both a necessity but also an impediment, which makes it a, a flashpoint. Um, but here's what's key, and I think here's what is, 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 is making bioethics such a hot issue right now with the technological advances. It goes back to Jurassic Park, <laughs> that classic line from the original Jurassic Park movie, just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. 
And that's that's really what we're being confronted with now because there's so much as never before that we're now able to do. How large is the scope of bioethics? Like, is it just restricted to healthcare or is there more in view? Well, that's a great question. And 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 I'm 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 glad you asked it. Um, the scope is much larger than simply healthcare. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the movie. You probably didn't. I mean, it was it was known at the time, but it but um, the the nineteen ninety seven film Gattaca, and I would recommend people watching that just from a cultural standpoint, just just for for um, uh, the intellectual stimulation of what it says. It really was a prescient and thought provoking film, but it was it was a futuristic science fiction thriller about a day when genetic testing and engineering reigned supreme. Um, it was about a day when those with good genes were given privilege and opportunity, and those with poor genes were um, remanded to the lowest rung of society. That's not science fiction anymore. Uh, the beginning of the 21st century, as many would know, was marked by the race to decode the human body. The Human Genome Project was the most expensive, most ambitious biology mission in all of history. Uh, it's been called biology's equivalent to NASA's moonshot. Its goal was nothing less than the operating instructions for the human body. And with that knowledge, we would be able to do so many things, uh, be able to revolutionize, for example, the detection, the prevention, the treatment of conditions from cancer to depression to old age itself. And we did it. One of the reasons we're having such an explosion of new things now is because that was successful. It started in 1990. It was finished in 2003. And uh, but what you know, think about all that we can do with it. And there's so much, though, to consider about that ethically. I mean, because just for example, and again, I'm trying to give you examples of outside of healthcare. You can use genetic uh, testing to encourage uh, whether to preserve a life or not. Uh, people find out, for example, they're going to have a child with Down syndrome, and they can be encouraged to end that child's life or make the decision to do that. Prenatal testing can also confront parents with whether or not their children will have hemophilia or cystic fibrosis or muscular dystrophy. Uh, up to 100 different things can be detected through genetic testing um, in, a, in a prenatal context. Or whether or not their child has a genetic uh, tendency toward dwarfism, for example, as well. Then, as I re remember one doctor from the National Institute of Health was quoted, he said, then parents would have to make a decision once they know, is this baby, and the language is interesting, is this baby acceptable? Is this going to be an acceptable child? And um, and again, it, it's no matter where you stand on on abortion and the and the beginnings of life and when insolment begins, and we've had conversations about that and podcasts on that. Um, almost everyone is universally, you know, against second trimester abortions, um, second and third trimester abortions. And when is the ideal time to do this genetic testing? When is this genetic testing most commonly done? It's between 16 and 18 weeks. It's a second trimester issue. Uh, so, um, so the, this, the, these are, this is a significant conversation. So that's first. And then, then, and then also we need to be talking about and thinking about in terms of broadening out, broadening out the scale, the, 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 um, tampering of genes themselves. I mean, this can be done in, in one of two ways. First, you can perform what's called somatic cell therapy, which is when you do something to an individual body and that individual body alone, and it stops with that person and that person alone. Or you can do what's known as germline therapy, which is radically different. Germline therapy is when you actually change the human stock. 
now, when used to apply medical healing to an individual, somatic cell therapy holds enormous promise. Uh, but germline therapy plays with the very nature of our creation, impacting generations. It's the changing of the human makeup, and it cannot be undone. Um, this kind of genetic work is not simply frightening, but I, I, I would argue it's totally at odds with the Bible. It's we made versus God made. It's manufacturing versus creation. It's trying to make ourselves in our own image versus being made in his image. And it opens the door to nightmarish possibilities, including um, the creation of a super race of people, for example, who can simply afford the best genetic enhancements over and against those who cannot. So yes, to your question, issues related to bioethics go well beyond just healthcare issues. Well, if we if we talk about the ethics part of bioethics, like I think that even someone who's only casually listened to our podcast knows by this point that not everyone shares the same standard of ethics. Okay, we, we like, I feel like that is the bottom line of a lot of our podcasts. But the field of ethics, the, of bioethics, so if I'm not mistaken, it is actually guided by like a handful of, at least within bioethics, like agreed upon principles. And so can you impact what those principles are that are guiding bioethics? There are. Medical ethics is a field, is, is, has four guiding values, four guiding ideas that are present. Uh, they are autonomy, justice, beneficence, and non-maleficence. Those, those are the four guiding ethical doctrines. Let me, let me unpack those a bit. Uh, and foundational bioeth bioethics would say that all four of those principles, if you're going to be ethical, have to be respected not just one or one at the expense of another, all four have to come together and have to be respected if you're going to be ethical. Okay, Here, here's what those four mean. Autonomy requires that the patient, and, and in medical ethics, this is all kind of patient-centric. It doesn't really broaden it out to, is it okay to just do a particular thing? This is where ethics is having to broaden itself because not all of this, I mean, it does ultimately come back to human application, but still, it, it, um, this is going to be very patient-centric. Autonomy requires that the patient have autonomy, you know, have, have independence. It's not something inflicted on them. Mm -hmm. uh, they have thought, intention, and action when making decisions regarding a procedure. They're fully informed. They're not coerced. Um, so that's the idea of, of autonomy. The idea of justice is that the burdens and benefits of new or experimental treatments must be distributed equally among all groups. Um, beneficence requires that the procedure be provided with the intent of doing good for the patient involved. And then non-maleficence is that uh, would require that a procedure does not harm the patient or others involved in society. Now, Christians would add to that list with, I mean, I mean, and I know that you're probably sitting there thinking yourself, okay, those are a good four, but my gosh, it leaves out a lawful lot of stuff. And it does. And just as from a, a quick you know, theology 101, you would say, okay, here's what I would add to that list. Um, we need to throw in something about just the doctrine of the sanctity of human life uh, and the importance of honoring the God-ordained nature of human life and how we were made. And Christians would define personhood differently than non-Christians uh, in light of a soul and, and, and belief in a soul and that there is ensoulment. Uh, and then that's what gives us our value and our worth and being made in the image of God. We would also think differently about our bodies and seeing them as less as something to be manipulated 
and more as something to be stewarded. And also seeing our, obviously our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And even our theology, and this is something that's not often talked about, even our theology of human suffering and everything about science and technology is so intent on eliminating suffering. Um, even our theology of human suffering would be different and at least the role and place of it. So you have foundational medical ethics, uh, but then as Christians, we have so much more to add, I think, to the conversation that we would want added to the conversation. If someone's looking for a good, and, and this, let me just anticipate this question that we might get, like a good you know, introduction to thinking along this, um, one of the best was written by a guy named Gilbert Mylander. And it was uh, something called Bioethics, and the subtitle is A Primer for Christians. And that's a great book to start. There's a lot of good books out on, bio, on bioethics from a Christian perspective. But that's a, that's a good one. It's already, it's already in its fourth edition. And, um, and, uh, and it's one that obviously is always in need of updating. But that's a good place to start. Well, something that I would love to learn more about, and maybe you could share some of your thoughts on this, is I just don't know enough about the relationship between bioethics and like the scientific process. Like you mentioned that bioethics can, and for some, like impede the scientific pro- like or can slow it down or it can kind of get in the way. Um, like, like, let's say, for example, that bioethicists, they do decide that IVG maybe is riddled with too many dangers and that it shouldn't be pursued. Now, do they have the authority to shut down research? Like, in, a, in other words, like, do bioethicists have the final say in, in no, regards? They have no official status whatsoever. Okay. I mean, there are there often would be like a voice crying in the wilderness. Now, countries and governments can determine and perhaps based and, and they, they listen to bioethicists, obviously. They're part of that conversation about whether something is legal or not. But um but uh, I, I wish bioethicists did have a stronger voice at the table. And, and, but there are some things that are illegal. And I, and I do think we would, to your point, um, at least in some countries, like in the United States, um, uh, the, the kind of uh, work that would really alter the genetic makeup for generations is not allowed. But, um, but that's why the world was so alarmed. You may recall this. It came out in uh, 2018, I believe it was, uh, the, the whole CRISPR baby uh, scandal where there was a scientist who presented a paper, a Chinese scientist, who said that he had created the world's first gene-edited babies, and um, and had gone where no anyone operating with ethics had ever gone before, and where at that an ethicist roundly condemned it. Scientists and communities condemned it around the world as as crossing an ethical boundary, but they did it. I don't mean to be cynical about this, but, you know, um, consumer demand is is what really has the final word, not ethics. Profit has the final word. Progress for the sake of progress too often has the final word. There might be an ethical cry at first, but then after we get over what I've often called the yuck factor, you know, where you hear something for the first time and you just go, yuck, of course that's wrong. But after a while, you get used to it over and over again, and you're so exposed to it that when the yuck factor goes away, you start looking at it pragmatically and just doing whatever you think will bring value to your life. You you ask yourself, not so much whether that procedure is ethical, you ask yourself, well, what would that procedure do for me? You know, and how will that enhance my life? And that's really all I care about. Um, Go back to IVG. And the article that we mentioned, um, which set this podcast in motion, which we'll link to in the notes, it was very candid. Uh, um, it, It noted that while the science right now may be driven by curiosity, everyone agrees it's going to be used to make money from people who are desperate to continue their biological line or just willing to pay to have the offspring of their choice. 
um, already several startups, multiple startups actually, backed by private venture groups uh, and private venture capital, are looking to commercialize the creation of lab-made eggs and sperm, and perhaps first, as it often is, related to farm animals. It, uh, the article actually quoted the Associate Director of Science for the Center for Genetics and Society, and I can't remember the person's name, but it's, that's an advocacy group that argues for responsible use of genetic technology. And she said that the public tends to assume scientists pursue only worthwhile research. Not true. Uh, once something is possible, she said, the presumption becomes now that we can do it. How can anyone say we should not do it? Kind of like once the and once the cow's out of the barn, it's too late to shut the gate. And see, and that's what's happening right now is that we're doing these things. We're discovering these things. Technology is just running rampant and then ethicists are running behind it. Hmm. And that's not the time to do it, um, ideally. But then again, breakthroughs are happening so fast and, you know, ethicists don't even know what it is they're supposed to be thinking about because they don't know what's being worked on and what's being um, enabled. And then there's the worry that is running throughout all of this is that other countries, perhaps with less scientific and regulatory oversight, will pursue the work first. Mm. And uh, it's a global competition. One scientist also noted, and I appreciated their, their candid, how candid they were, that there's ego involved, obviously, and also the structure of incentives in science that also feeds into arguments like if we don't do it, X you know, country is going to do it. Therefore, we've got to do it first. And so the profit potential, the push to commercialize these technologies can be a, a huge motivation. So all that to say, you no know, ethics seldom has the first word and it, and it um, seldom, if ever, has the final word. What would you say are some of the biggest bioethics issues of our current day? Yeah. I tend to think of these in categories. And, and I've, I've already outlined a few specific ones, you know, uh, but the principal concerns revolve around four, four areas, at least right now. I would say the definition of life, the, the, the making or creation of life, the modification of life, and then finally, the ending of life. Mm-hmm. Um, the definition of life comes into play with everything from stem cell research and, you know, um, IGV, we've been talking about and artificial intelligence, you know, is that life? Is that consciousness? Uh, so issues are like even revolving around what is life? Uh, the issues surrounding the making of life we've discussed at length with things like, as I mentioned, IGF, IGV. Uh, the modification of life would include such issues as genetic engineering. And the ending of life has to do with when are we going to determine that life ends and how to end it, which plays into ethical issues as such as active versus passive euthanasia. So I, I would say those are the those are the main categories of thought right now, of which many issues fall into one or more of those categories. Well, what role do you think that, or what role, if any, I guess I should say, do you think that the church has specifically in engaging with bioethics? Like it's not uncommon for you to tackle a bioethical issue in a blog post or in one of your books, but is there a place for the church to be talking about these things from stage or behind the pulpit? Yes, yes, yes. A thousand times. Yes. I sometimes feel like I, I you know, I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm tilting at a windmill when I'm, I so, I'm so wanting to encourage 
my fellow pastors and fellow church leaders and fellow Christian thought leaders and just anybody who's got any kind of teaching platform to please speak to these issues and, 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 um, <clears throat> and, and, and so many other issues like it. it, it it's like we, our people that we're entrusted with are, are desperately crying out for help and how to think about these things and how to think Christianly about these things and how to respond Christianly about these things and a thousand other issues. And, and yes, yes. I mean, stay rooted in scripture. Yes. Teach the word. But when, when, when people say, well, all you need to do, you know, don't worry about all these issues. Just, just, just teach the Bible, you know, just start that 47 week series through Romans. I'm all for that. But I mean, but, to, but, but we're, when we say that we act like scripture doesn't speak to these issues or even what is the purpose of studying scripture? It's not just studying it for the sake of studying it. It's not just so we can store away exegetical and expositional knowledge in our head. It's not just so that we can grow spiritually fat. The purpose of scripture is so that we can do the word, not just know the word, but do it so we can apply it to our day as salt and light. Um, I have done a weekend series on this. Some years ago, I did a two-part weekend series. Now I'm bringing it back. I'm done ranting. <laughs> I did a two-week series on uh, on bioethics that uh, we will not put in the show notes because it is just too outdated. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't dare inflict that series now <laughs> because of just all that's happened with technology since. And I think we did. I did that one back in 2003. But I have used many other avenues to speak to these issues more recently, blogs and this podcast and Q&A forums and the church and culture conference and content on that to speak to these issues. And again, all churches and church leaders should. Because what really is at hand, um, and, and you've heard me, I know personally, talk about this. What's really at hand with all this is, is the doctrine of humanity, the most challenged doctrine of our day, the, the very idea of what it means to be human. I've long told my graduate students that the doctrine of humanity is by far the most pressing doctrine of our day in regard to culture, for, because it's the one area of Christian thought that is most challenged by the world in which we live, and the one where we have the least to draw from historically. Uh, you find a reflection, I defy you, from Origen or Athanasius or Luther or Melanchthon or Bart or Bruner that, that speaks to stem cell research or human cloning, transsexualism, artificial intelligence, you know, the headlines of our day. As the first five centuries, uh, you know, hammered out Christology, mostly, and later generations talked about everything from the Holy Spirit to the doctrine of revelation. Ours is the day that is being forced like none other to re-examine the doctrine of humanity in ways that hopefully will serve the church uh, in this present hour. But to be silent here is to be silent at the point of great need mm -hmm. and to be silent at a place of great confusion. We've got to, as I mentioned, help people think Christianly about such things and from it act Christianly to be the salt and light of the world, including the scientific and technological world that it so desperately needs. And so uh, we can't bury our head in the sand and we can't plead ignorance and we can't say, well, I don't know how to think about those things because there's too much out there to help us think about these things. And even what we're doing today. I mean, we're, we're collectively trying to think about these things together and we need to be doing that. Um, and, um, and not just being subject to what happens because that's what happens right now. Something happens technologically and we just look at what it does for our life and if we can afford it and we never think Christianly about it. And, and we must, 
We simply must. Gosh, I echo those sentiments so much. I just had a conversation on the phone the other day with a, um, uh, with a friend of mine who had previously attended Mech, and then she um, she moved and she was, she was attending another church. And she was saying, you know, the, the church is great. You know, they they teach the Bible. There's community there. But, like, I like, I can't ever – I've been there for, like, over a year now, and the pastor has never mentioned an issue in our everyday world that would help me to apply the Bible. Like the, the questions that I have are not being answered in the church. And I'm asking myself, like, where am I supposed to, as a Christian, find the answers to this? Yeah. Like if my church isn't going to talk about it, who is going to talk about it? And I just, I, I, I can imagine, and I know you could speak to this too, but like I can imagine as a someone, you know, as a pastor or a church leader, it probably is terrifying to tackle some of the things that, um, that you tackle or that needs to be tackled. But I mean, just, just being encouraged of, you know, people like, Christians are asking for it and they're thirsty for it. And they want to know, they really are curious as to what does God think about these things? How should I think about them? Yeah. You know, yeah. Let me, I, I, I will add a little footnote to that because I, you're, it, it's, um, and, and maybe this is something that I can say as an older pastor uh, to younger pastors and leaders who might be listening. Let me tell you why, uh, Pastors, I'll just speak to pastors, don't speak out. There are several reasons. One, they they don't feel equipped. You know, they don't they, they didn't teach them in seminary how to think about these things. So they don't know how to teach. I mean, it's not, they're not being silent. They're being silent maybe because like, I don't know what to think. I don't know how to teach on this. I'm not. I'm. So I would just encourage pastors that um, this is where we need to do our homework. We, we need, this is where we need, you know, we, we spend hours a week studying scripture. We need to spend time studying culture and issues and reading up on this. And hopefully things like church and culture podcasts and church and culture webs, everything that we're doing is helping with that. We're, mm-hmm. we're helping provide that kind of material. But I think that's one reason why they don't, but there's, there's another reason. Um, you know, I, I know like they were like, they were okay. <laughs> there are two ways to go through COVID. One way was, um, I am not going to talk about any of the issues because I'm, I'm not going to win. There's no way I can win. No matter what side I take, what, no matter what position I come on, uh, if I talk about the murder of George Floyd and racism, or if I talk about critical race theory, or if I talk about racism in general, or if I talk about mask or not mask, vaccination or not vaccination, if I talk about uh, issues related to um I mean, anything you, you, you name, you know, Christian nationalism or, or, or anything. If I talk about any of the issues of the day, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, tick off half the church and, 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 and I'll, I'll just, you know, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to be a lightning rod. I'm not going to do it. And so you've got this pressure to speak out on issues, but people are saying, that's the last thing I want to do. Let me just preach the Bible, you know? Um, I would say that, okay, I understand you want to be careful. And I understand it's really hard when you take any kind of stand um, and uh, on anything. I don't care what it is. You're going to have somebody who obviously does not agree with your stand or where you ended up, no matter how careful you were with it or how winsome or compelling you tried to be or biblically based you were. They just not, and they're going to get mad at you because we reduce everything to ideology. And, um, but what I would say is, is that, one of the qualifications of a pastor is courage. It has to be. And that your goal isn't always to be popular, it's to be biblical. And also your goal is to be a shepherd. 
And you have to just ask yourself, where, where, where does the sheep that I've been entrusted with need to be shepherded? How do they need to be shepherded? And, and one, of the, one of the most you know, painful things to read in scriptures where Jesus said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And there's so many ways that people can be unshepherded. And so, um, and, and so I would say that that's just one of our jobs. And then the, the last thing I would say to encourage leaders is that you had people go through, for example, COVID. I'm just using that as an example. Um, not just bioethical issues and stuff like that, but like, and, and purposefully didn't speak to anything. Um, we didn't do it that way. We went through COVID and spoke to everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> Clearly, as biblically as I knew how to lead us through it. And so it, and it felt like cultural whiplash trying to deal with all the issues, but it's like, okay, we're not going to split on this. We're not going to freak out on this. We're going to think about this lovingly and biblically and, 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 and if we need to agree to disagree agreeably, we're going to do it. But, but here's, here's, here's what we need to be remembering. Here's how, so we had a whole series on politics leading up to the election. We had series on racism. We had series on all different kinds of things. And instead of creating a firestorm, it calmed everything. Hmm. And it brought unity where maybe there could have been disunity. It, 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 it reminded people what's theology and what's ideology. It reminded people, okay, well, maybe I'm, I'm overreacting or maybe I'm underreacting, you know? And so, so it was, it was, it was really healthy. And we came through it bigger, more unified, healthier after than even before. I mean, we came through it and it was, it was, you know, hard, but positive. And so I, I think that, I guess what I'm trying to say, if, if people can hear it from an old guy, <laughs> my experience is that it does more harm to dodge the issues than it does to engage the issues. Mm -hmm. I do think you need to be, not be tone deaf. You need to do your homework. You need to be respectful of other opinions as you present what you believe you need to say. Uh, so I think how you do it really does matter. Um, you can do it in a way that does create a self-inflicted wound. But if you do it, you know, um, with integrity and with, with good research and with respect toward other views, people, even people who say, well, you know, I don't agree with that, but I get it. Mm -hmm. I get it. You know, and I, and I think that you'll find that that works for you more than it works against you. So all that from your little ending <laughs> comment, I just, you know, so. Well, anyway. I, I, I think that was really helpful and I hope that that was well heard um, by our listeners. So thank you. Thanks Jim for tackling this and, all my crazy podcast ideas. So I'm sure the next week or in ne another week, you'll hear another one of those crazy ideas. But until then, have a great week and thank you for tuning in.